As you're finding your seat, if you will, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me to Galatians chapter 2, where we have been together studying. Galatians chapter 2, if you're our guest, we are working our way through this letter of Paul to the churches of Galatia. We're picking up today, looking at verses 17 through 21. Of course, I also want to add my voice to the encouragement that we remember those who are in great need today, great need of God's presence and comfort. And we ask that the Lord would continue to meet with them and with us as we seek to to be a source of comfort to others. We're going to wrap up chapter 2 this morning looking at one of the key sections in the letter to the Galatians. I'm going to read for you, and as I read, you remember that this is God's word for your heart. It's more important than even food for your body today. I'm going to start in verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, well, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. How fast are you? I'm not very fast. I imagine that most of you are in this room could probably outrun me at a foot race. A lot of you really actually could. But I would be willing to bet that no one in this room is as fast as Christian Coleman. You, you may not know Christian Coleman's name. He, he lived here in Knoxville. He was a UT student. He was a scholarship athlete on our track team. The man is fast. He, he runs even now at the 100 meter and the one by, uh, four by 100 uh, relay speeds, and he holds multiple school uh, uh, conference and uh, national records uh, as an as a, uh, athlete. I saw an article that points out that from time to time, Christian Coleman will have strangers come up to him at the mall and say, hey, you're Christian Coleman, aren't you? Want to race? And he always is kind of 
stumbles at that. He says, people will look at me and say, you're Christian Coleman. You want to race? And I mean, like, we're in the middle of a mall, so obviously not. But it's not just him. In the article I was reading, it said that world-class athletes regularly have strangers come up to them and say, want to race? Even though these people are, are not average at all, these athletes, they are skilled and they are, they are specimens who have trained their bodies well at what they do. And my response to the, to the thinking that you could outrun someone like Christian Coleman is, well, that, that's a bold move. Sport, I don't know how that's going to turn out for you. If you think that you can outrun an Olympic sprinter, you are detached from reality. And Paul has labored for these last several verses to speak to the churches of Galatia about the usefulness of the law in salvation in such a way as to say, if you think you can get to God by being a good person, you are outside your mind. You do not know what you're talking about. There is only one way to God, and it is through Jesus Christ. And that means is open only by God's grace and only through faith, not by any works of the law. It's simply a way that we cannot erase, that we cannot win. Pastor John Bunyan is attributed as writing a couplet that sort of sums up what Paul's been saying in the letter of Galatians at this point. He's recorded as having said, run, John, run. The law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. The wonderful, unthinkable news of the gospel that we have been singing about and declaring, even in the midst of sorrow today, the wonderful, unthinkable news is that God is merciful and he has shown his enormous love toward us in that his only son paid the full price for our sin in order to bring us to God so that death is no longer our enemy but it is a conquered foe. Forgiveness becomes ours not by being good, Paul has said, but because God is gracious. And this gracious God is so gracious that it almost feels scandalous. And that's what's been tripping up the Judaizers God, that God's terms for receiving sinners is not a list of do's and don'ts to get to him. His terms are free grace given to anyone who will turn from their sin and put their hope in him. And that is glorious news. Salvation by grace through faith. No works, no payment, no earning at all. That is really good news. That's what we examined last week in verses 15 and 16. And if you missed that, would you please go back and listen to that message online? I think it will help you to see those, uh, this, our text today and that text in context together. And if the news of free grace in the gospel sounds a little bit scandalous to you, can I encourage your hearts? You're probably pretty close to understanding it. 
If, if it feels a little bit scandalous, like free, I, I think you're just about to understand the measure of grace that we've been given. But if the gospel of free grace feels really mundane or familiar to you, or if, if you feel the temptation to protect the gospel by adding some good works on top of it, you may want to look at it again. You may want to consider the goodness of the gospel of grace the way that Paul has been giving it to us. This glorious gospel tells us that our own goodness, friends, brothers, sisters, our goodness cannot save us. It will not rescue us from our great enemy. The gospel tells us that God, by grace, through his son, will. He will rescue us. And the gospel also tells us more than just that we are rescued, but it, it applies to how we live every day of our life. How we face both the ups and the downs of life is impacted by the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we come to a passage like we've got before us today, we need to keep in mind the whole scope of the passage. Often we come to the Bible with preconceived notions or with ideas and we misread what's being said Sometimes earnestly, sometimes uh, sort of wanting to make it say something that it doesn't. But when we divorce what's being said from what was originally intended, we go awry. And so we need to understand this passage in context. It's particularly vulnerable. This passage gets used a lot uh, in ways that are probably not faithful to the original meaning of this text. And so it's crucial that we not make that mistake. That we remember that Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing this letter before there was a Calvin or a Luther or anything like that in history. He is writing this letter to churches with people who are Gentiles who've come to faith and Jews who've come to faith. And now there's been a, a, a disruption in their body over what the gospel actually is. How does someone get made right with God has become an active question again because of these false teachers who had added good works to the simple gospel. Simple faith was not enough in their minds. They added that living by certain Old Testament practices was a part of what faith in Christ meant. They said that there was Christ plus there was the law. And they particularly emphasized at Galatia the law of circumcision. And Paul had already faced a circumstance just like that. So he's writing to the Galatians saying, I have walked down this road before, way back at the church at Antioch. We had an incident there that wasn't about circumcision. It was about food, but it was the same thing that was going on. And that incident was one of the most dramatic moments in apostolic history because the apostle Paul had to confront the apostle Peter and Barnabas and the leading Jewish men of this church for the way that they had listened to those false teachers and given in to the claims that really how you eat your food and what you eat really does impact whether God's happy with you or not. That may seem distant to you, but it was not distant to them. They, they were falling prey to, the, to, the, to the, uh, the lie that there's the gospel that, that gets us to Jesus, but really if we really mean it, we've got to add some things to it to mean it. And so Paul, who had preached a faithful gospel to those very people at Galatia. Paul, who had, who had preached a true gospel of free grace, hears that these Judaizers have come in among them 
And those Judaizers were claiming that it was Paul that was messing up the gospel. That he's the one who was off base. That he didn't have enough to his gospel. His gospel was too thin. So they, they believed that they were just the people to help clarify that error the Judaizers did. Paul needed some help in their minds. And you know and I know that a gospel of totally free salvation by grace is actually offensive to people. For the very reason that if, if, if we hear that we can't earn our way to God, that puts us in an interesting place of humility, of recognition. I, I'm not good enough. I can't get there by my efforts. And I need what only God can give me. You become utterly dependent. You become utterly needy. That's what the true gospel does. Here these teachers were saying there is something else you can do. You can add to it your works. So the gospel tells us that there's nothing that we can do. But it also tells us that God is gracious and kind. It tells us that God forgives us without prepayment or repayment. That God forgives us. And that feels scandalous. If God would treat us like that, well, the question might arise in some people's minds, why would we not just take forgiveness and then go live recklessly for ourselves? Won't we, won't we all end up like pagans if that's what we believe? And that's the question behind our text today. That's the question that's floating underneath what Paul said in verses 17 through 21. And Paul's answer is one of the most powerfully concise statements on the Christian life in all of Scripture. Paul is showing that justification affects both our standing before God and it affects our daily living. What happened at justification actually works its way out every single day. So we might ask the question, what are the implications that those who are in Christ are made right by faith and not by works? And I've got three implications that I want you to see in this text with me. The first is that in Christ, you died. Second is that in Christ, you live. And the third, which is a very practical application, now go live in Christ. Let's begin by looking at how Paul addresses the question. He's, he's really asking the question, what about the law? If what Ronnie preached last week, that no one's justified by works of the law, if that's true, what do we do with the law? What about the law? Verse 17 says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. If I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. When Paul presents the powerful gospel of pure grace by mere faith, you can almost hear a rumble start in the background. Saved by faith, not by works. Whoa, 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 champ. Hold on. Hold on. Are you saying that God would forgive us and accept us as sinners? Are you saying that we don't have to get better to come to God? Now, if that's true, won't everybody just stay a sinner, Paul? 
If that's true, won't we be like the Gentile sinners who don't even know God's law? The doctrine of justification by faith raises that concern. If by his free grace, God has already declared us to be righteous before him, then why bother living a holy life? Why does it matter? What incentive do I have to live for God? From that particular question's point of view, the doctrine of justification by faith kind of seems irresponsible. It kind of feels too big. Like, oh, you're going to mess it up. You're not going to get it right. In fact, it kind of sounds like you won the spiritual lottery in one sense. You didn't have to do anything. You just showed up, bought the ticket, and, and now you won. If God gives righteousness away for free, who will ever live to glorify him? Well, Paul has an answer to that question. I hope that question hits you as big as it actually is. Because I think Paul actually gives us the answer in a way that not only enables us to understand it, but enables us to live according to the truth of the bigness of grace and what is done with the law. So if you want to get the context, according to the Judaizers, Paul and Peter's problem was they had started to act like Gentiles. And when we use the word Gentiles, in the Judaizers' mind, they're going to attach the word sinner to Gentile, not only because of a moral claim, but the word sinner in their mind is somebody who doesn't have the law, is living outside of the law, is, in no, is no relationship to the law. And so that person is just a Gentile sinner. They just, they're just kind of the other people. They live out there without knowing what's good for them, right? And so... If Paul and Peter have begun to live their life in ways that actually are, are ways that Gentiles live, that God has declared to Peter directly and to Paul directly that these are ways that are permissible for Christians to live because the gospel is going to the nations. All the Gentiles are going to get to hear the gospel. And God has ordained that. And here, Peter and Paul begin to eat the kinds of foods that the old covenant says, don't eat that. And they begin to sit with people who the old covenant says, don't sit with people like that. I want you to be distinct from those people, distinguish yourself, and then Christ comes and unites, makes the two one. And here Peter and Paul have begun to take seriously that God is making one person out of two. So they've begun eating and sitting and in house fellowship with people who the Judaizers say, y'all do know what they eat, right? Y'all know what kind of people those are, right? Those are people who don't even have the law. They're, they're sinners. So you're, you're, you, Peter, you, Paul, are starting to look an awful lot like one of those Gentile sinners. According to the Judaizers, that was their problem. And in doing that, the Judaizers added an accusation. If you look carefully at the text, they say... In our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Sounds like the Judaizers are saying, look, your, your version of the gospel, oh, you silly, naive people, your version of the gospel is that free grace gets you in. And look, when you do that, you start acting like Gentiles. You start looking like Gentiles. So really, your gospel makes Jesus look like he's kind of cheering on sinners. Like he's the one actually promoting sin. 
So if Peter and Paul were guilty of this charge, then they, by implication, were indicting Jesus in their gospel. And even they, they were leading those poor Gentiles into a foolish life where they would get a half gospel, according to the Judaizers. And so someone needed to straighten them out. And of course, I mentioned the Judaizers felt up to the task. So they come in with their extra version of the gospel. But let's just consider this for just a minute. First of all, you do know there's no other kind of person that God will save than a sinner. There's, there's nobody in this room that stands on their own righteousness and looks up and goes, I, I, I've kinda, I, I'm ready, I'm, I'm the one that earned it. You, you can hand out the salvation ticket right here, I've got it. No, we are all desperately needy, wicked in our heart and turned away from God by our very nature. That's us. And in that reality, brothers and sisters, we see we all have need. So when Peter and Paul are preaching the gospel to people who don't even have the law, and they're preaching the gospel of salvation by grace through faith to them that Jesus rescues even sinners, we ought to see ourselves on the receiving end of that good news. It's critical to remember that there are no hypothetical sinners that Jesus saves, only actual ones. But that doesn't mean that God is in the business of endorsing sin, like those accusers said. Well, doesn't that make Jesus kind of culpable for your sin? No, Paul says. Look at that next two, two words. Certainly not. God forbid. To put it in the vernacular, no way. That is not what he does at all. Christ is not a servant of sin. When God justifies sinners by faith, he is not aiding and abetting our rebellion. He is in no way pushing sin forward. In fact, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus answers, pays for, fully, without exception, every sin of every believer. Pays it. So he's not overlooking sin or endorsing it. He's paying for sin. So when Paul asks that rhetorical question, uh, is, is, does that make him a, 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 a responsible for sin? The answer is absolutely not. And you know as well as I do that when you and I sin, it's no one's fault but our own. That's the, precisely the same way he spoke to the church at Rome. Do you see the connection? If, if you're kind of familiar with the Bible, can you see how Galatians 2 right here echoes a lot of what you read in Romans chapter 6? So let your minds go with me there. You can turn there if you want. I'm going to read for us the first 11 verses of Romans 6. And you listen to how what we've read lines up very closely with what Paul said to the church at Rome. Romans 6 verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Listen, Christian. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So much hope in that passage. 
We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Remarkably similar Remarkably similar language. So Paul presses this, this case even further. He's speaking about the law, the nature of the law, how it relates to us as Christians. What, what about the law, Paul? Don't we have to keep it? And Paul says if he were to actually rebuild a life dependent on the law, that's when he would become a transgressor. Look at verse 18. If I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. If he were to try to erase the power of Jesus on the cross by substituting the works of the law for the work of Christ, that's when he would become a transgressor. If he were to try to make the law the thing that secured his, his okayness with God, that's when he would become a transgressor. Paul, Paul in his teaching was working to tear down the demand that you have to keep the Mosaic law to be made right with God. Paul is, is destroying that requirement in the way that he preaches and teaches that Jesus alone is what makes us right with God. And if he goes back on that now, if in the midst of persecution by those who want to add to the gospel, if Paul relents and says, okay, 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 fine. Circumcision, sure, you can add that to Jesus. Food laws, go ahead. I mean, go ahead. I, I guess those are important. If he adds it back now, he would become the one who is tearing down the gospel itself by adding to it. He says about his relationship to the law in verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. You know that before Christ, God's people were under the law. They lived for the law. They lived according to the law. But when Christ came, he fulfilled the law. He kept it perfectly. And that system was no longer intact. Christ did something new in the new covenant. So by grace, we can now be made right through faith in Christ. So the centrality of law keeping for acceptance, that has to be torn down. That has to be torn down. And in that way, God's people even had to die to the law in that sense. But I think there's a truer sense, an even deeper sense. You know that Christ fulfilled the law while being one under the law. He came into that system, filled it up, and then died. And so it was through the very law that the law itself uh, was exposed and fulfilled. So Paul here is making a statement as he, as he is united to Christ in his death, the law, he has died to the law through even the requirements of the law. And likewise for you and for me, when we are united to Christ by faith, listen, we, we die, we die not only to the law, but also to sin. When I say we die to the law, I mean to its requirements as a means to get to God. 
But we also die to sin. Romans 6 made that absolutely plain. So the outcome of this death that we participate in by being united to Christ by faith is that we can truly and finally live for God. Do you see that? You see that in the way that Paul talks? He says, yet we know, oh sorry, this is verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified by Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ a servant of sin? Certainly not. And then verse 18, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. And then verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law and listened to the so that, so that I might live to God. That's a life lived at a deeper level than the exterior law could ever create. That's the law written on the heart. That's the new covenant spirit of God teaching us the law even as we live. I can live to God without the external minder of the law pressing it on me. I actually have a heart that was stone and is now flesh and I can live to God so that the law is no longer the thing that connects me to God. God himself has taken up residence in me and I am in Christ connected to God. This new life in Christ enables us to live for God in a new way. In Christ, our life actually comes to us through a spiritual death. It's the only way that we live. Paul died to the law and then he lived to God. When we say we died to the law, can I just give one caveat? Because I know your minds, I know my mind, we'll tend to start looking for exceptions and loopholes and we'll have questions. I don't think Paul here is saying that the law of God has lost its meaning or its relevance to Christians. That's the error of antinomianism, being against the law. That is wrong. That is not biblical. But Paul is saying the law is not how we are made right with God. So we don't hate or ignore the law. In fact, through Christ, we can live out at a new, in a new way. What the law prescribed, we can walk in God's ways, but we are accepted on Christ's account, not by our own obedience. And that's something that the law just could not give us. So in Christ, brothers and sisters, the first thing to note here in this section is Paul talks about his relationship to the law. He uses death language and he says that he died to the power of the law to convict him. And he also notes that he is, he is now living for God, so he's died to the power of sin to, to control him. And that's true of you too. Do you know that? If you've turned in repentance and faith to Christ, you have died to the power of the law to convict you. And you have died to the power of sin to control you. Do you know about the road to nowhere tunnel? It's over in uh, Bryson City, North Carolina, on that side of the Smokies. You, you may not be familiar with it. I wasn't familiar with it. I found out about it this week. Um, my, my brother, Ronnie, who loves and knows the Smokies so, so well, is a constant inspiration to me. And to get to, get to know some of these little turns and twists, some of your families are very, very familiar with those places. Uh, the, the, the official name of the Road to Nowhere Tunnel, which is on that eastern North Carolina side, is actually Highway 228. And it was promised early in the 20th century that they were going to have a, a highway that ran through there. But then when the, the park became the park, things kind of changed. And so now there's a road that leads to this tunnel 
in, in the Smokies and then just stops. And they've kind of made a hiking trail that comes off of it. But it was, it was going to be a road, and now it just kind of turned into a hiking trail. It's the, it's the road that leads to nowhere, or road to nowhere tunnel. And so if you were to hop on Highway 228 and say, you know what, I think I'm going to try to take Highway 228 through the Smokies and on up into Gatlinburg, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Because it doesn't go there. You, you can't get there using that road. But how many of us are trying to use a road that can't get us to God to get us to God? How many of us are thinking, if I'm just good enough, if I could get my life right, God would be happy with me? And Paul is saying, the law can't do that. That road does not go there. You cannot accomplish that through the law. But you absolutely can get to God through simple faith because he is gracious. There is no other way than putting your trust, your hope, your faith in Christ. And that, friends, is how you die to the demands of the law. That's how you live to God. So I want to ask you an application question at this point in the message. Have you done that? Is that true of you? Are you here today thinking, I'll get my life right and then I'll come to God? Oh, can I warn you against that? You have every reason to be warned today. You do not know what your day holds. Friend, turn to God today. He's gracious. He will receive you. You can't get good enough and he will receive you by simple faith because he's that gracious. If you will turn to him in repentance and faith, you will be forgiven, received, and made right with God. If you're a Christian in this room, you know that the the story of the Bible tells us over and over, Jesus uses examples, that if you're really going to live a life unto him, there's a kind of spiritual death that has to occur in our life, a turning away from ourselves. Romans 6 was so plain about that. You, you You have been crucified, you've been buried with Christ. Now reckon yourself dead so that you can live to God. Well, in Christ, we died, both to sin and the power of the law to convict us. Look with me at those verses 19 and 20. For through the law, I died to the law. And then he says, so that I might live to God, we just covered, so that I might live to God. Put your emphasis on that word. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, obviously, before we even dive into the meaning of these verses, I just want to confess out front that there's more here than I could exhaust in a single sermon. And there's, there's likely enough here to keep you meditating, Christian, for many years in your Christian walk. There's, there's enough here to apply to every area of your life. But see, right out of the gates, that Paul wants to make it plain that when we put our hope and faith in Christ, listen, we are so joined to Jesus that when he died, we died. And that when he rose, we rose. Do you see that? Every Christian, not super Christians, every Christian is so united to Jesus that when he died, I died. And that when he rose, I rose. We died in his death and we live in his life. Paul explains to the church at Galatia 
That one thing that, that happened when he was saved was that the law stopped being the reason that he lived. Now the law was in his heart. Every beat of his heart was there. But Paul is living for God in a new way. He's living by having died in Christ and now living in Christ's life. Listen to how the Phillips uh, paraphrase translates this particular section. As far as the law is concerned, I may consider that I died on the cross with Christ. And my present life is not that of the old I, but the living Christ within me. The bodily life that I now live, I live believing in the Son of God who loved me and sacrificed himself for me. Paul literally uses language that is, sees us joined in with Christ at the cross. The union is, is so frighteningly big when we consider it that at the cross of Christ, everyone who would ever believe in him was in him at that moment. That when he died on the cross, the death he was dying included us in it. When I believed on Christ, I was so united with him, so linked with him, that I am a part of his crucifixion, and that positionally becomes my crucifixion. I died in Christ at the cross. My old nature was slain at the cross. Yet, Paul says, I don't stay in death. Amen? The life I now live, I'm living by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Christ's resurrection has become my resurrection. The life I live in faith in the Son of God, I live it that way, in faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. So, Christian, when Christ was crucified, your old self was crucified with him. And when Christ was raised from the dead, new life came to every person who is in Christ. Christian, you are so joined to Jesus that you died in his death and live in his life. Do you remember how Paul talks about this in the book of Ephesians? He says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Christian, see that you are hidden in Christ, that you are so united to him that you are in him by God's mere grace through faith in Christ you have been joined to him and so that you as you live right now Jesus is living through you and again that's not the description of Christians who've achieved it who are really good at it that's what it means to be a Christian every genuine Christian is a new creation 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, if anyone, anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And as new creations, we live our lives as Christ's life. 
We take up our cross every day and we follow him. We're living right now in the present power of our justification. The same power that was expressed in justifying us is at work in us as we live right now sanctifying us. So for the Christian, the power of sanctification is drawn from our justification. That's where that, that source of power comes from. That, that's a fancy way of saying, if, if you, you, you are to live a God-glorifying life the same exact way that you got saved to begin with. It's by faith in Christ and his gospel. Jerry Bridges, who's so helpful to me when it comes to this kind of discussion, I commend that you read Jerry Bridges. He wrote, remember, we need the gospel not as a door into initial saving, but also as the bookend to keep our daily lives from becoming a performance treadmill. As we rely on Christ's righteousness, far from leading us to license, to a license to sin, it actually motivates us to deal with the sin we see in our lives by presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. When we see the gospel rightly, it doesn't license sin in our lives. We say, no, my life belongs to him. So everywhere I see sin in my life, I have been crucified with Christ. That is no longer who I am. I want my life to be Jesus' life. So wherever I go, I want Jesus' life to live. Look how the word life or live appears four times in that one verse, in verse 20. Either life or live, over and over. When our old self died, a new self came alive. And our new life is one that is lived moment by moment in faith in Jesus Christ. And he becomes our life. When we wake up in the morning, Christ is our life. When we face temptation, Christ is our life. When we are called on to sacrifice, Christ is our life. When we're thinking through, how am I going to spend my money? How am I going to spend my time? What do I want out of my marriage? What do I expect out of my kids? What are my goals in life? In every single thing we do as a Christian, Christ is our life. It's no longer we who live, friends, but Christ who lives in us. Our life is lived every moment in faithful dependence on Christ by his spirit. And then if you miss what's next, friends, if I could just call your attention to this text. If you, just, if you would just believe what I'm about to tell you. I can't describe the impact it would have for you. Do you see that he says, Christ is the one who loved me and gave himself for me? I just wonder how rarely I hold that. So often we think of Jesus' love as a very far away thing, a theoretical thing, a theological thing. Sure, it's true. Jesus loves, yeah. We don't hold it in our laps and recognize what Paul recognized right here. In fact, if I could stump all you theological uh, academics in the room. I, I think one of the most meaningful songs we can learn and sing is yes, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. 
Paul said that right here. Jesus loves me. Not the hypothetical me, not just us as a group, Christian. Jesus' love is personal, direct, and real. Just hold on now. All that we've talked about, about union with Christ, is an expression of his great love. Because God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Because he loved, and he loved them in this way, that he gave his son. Do you see the love of God on display in the work of Christ? And do you see how knowing that you are loved is the thing you're chasing every time you sin? Every time you walk away from a crucified life, you're saying, maybe something else will satisfy me and I'll finally feel loved. Every time we abandon the truth of God's word, we are looking to answer the question, am I loved? And he has answered that question fully and finally in Jesus so that you can look right at your Bible and say, Jesus has loved me. Not just the theoretical me, not me when I get cleaned up. Me. And you. I think that's the most important question you could answer today. Do you believe that? Because I think if you believe that he has loved you in that way, if you saw it for what it was and put your hope in him, turning away from your sin, receiving that love, holding on to that love, then you would be able to say, look, Look, when Christ died, I died. When he was raised, I was raised. Everything about my life belongs to him. I'm, I'm gonna walk to glorify him. You, you come at me with, doesn't that justification by grace mean that we're all gonna sin too much? And I'm gonna say, I, I don't want sin. That's what Jesus died for. I wanna, he loves me. I wanna live for him. I think all of the power of temptation begins to evaporate around us when we see the power of the love of Christ displayed as he gave his life as a sacrifice for us. I pray that would be fanned into a roaring flame because I, I think knowing that would be how we would transform marriages, transform parenting, transform our lives. I, I think the love we have been shown through Christ, working out in people who say to their wife, and to their husband, and to their kids, and to their employer, look, look, the old me's dead. I, I'm, I'm gonna live by faith in the one who loved me and was crucified for me because I'm now in him. I've now been joined to him. But that still seems theological. So Paul takes the question, we're gonna land the plane right here, Galatians 2.20, the very end in 21, the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Christ's life has become Paul's life. And this means that Paul's not gonna let his life nullify what Christ has done. He's not gonna nullify God's grace. I think the word order in the original verse 21 tells us something. He starts with the word not. He says, not do I nullify. I, I, look, look, of all the things I'm gonna do, I am not going to nullify God's grace. It's a shocking statement in part because that's exactly what the Judaizers were doing. 
They were adding works to be made right with God. They were nullifying God's grace by adding something you had to do to finally make God happy. And that's not how Paul's going to live. He's not going to live like righteousness comes to us by our actions. Because to do that would be to act like the very death of the Son of God was pointless. Because if the law could save you, then the cross is pointless. That's what Paul's saying. If being good could save you, the cross has no meaning. That is such strong language, is it not? I actually think verse 21 is like the theological conclusion of the section. I think Ronnie's text last week is the core of the theology of this section. I think in verse 20, Paul's applying that. And I think in verse 21, he is dropping a haymaker on these people. He is absolutely unloading on them. We are not to live a life that nullifies the grace of God. In our homes, out where we work and live, the grace of God is not to be undone by the way that we live and by the way that we act and treat others. Whether that comes by acting like sin is still our master when we are no longer enslaved to sin or whether that comes by acting like there is something we can do ourselves to be made right with God. We do not nullify the grace of God. Imagine if you took what we've been saying this morning, the doctrine of justification by union with Christ through faith, and you bent that out toward people in your life. What impact would that have if you started to love other people the actual way that God has loved you? We don't wanna nullify the grace of God. Living like the cross of Christ is pointless. So we are to go live in Christ. We're to live in Christ. Are you getting more and more spam calls these days? Your, your, your phone, they, they've become masters at disguising it. Now they all come from like 865 or 423. Or I always wonder if it's one of you. So the, I'll, I'll answer. And like, you know, there's that, like five second gap where you know you've made a mistake. Where like, it's like the silence on the other end of the phone. You realize, oh no. Like uh, hang up quick. And if they talk, then it's a real person. You're like, oh, oh uh, hi, how are you? Yeah, no, um, no, goodbye. And you know, you, you're trying to figure out what to do. And most of the time it sounds like a real person. And then you realize it's not even a real person. On the other end, like it's a recording that sounds like a real person. It's like, hey, how you doing? Or whatever. And like, and then I'm talking to a machine. Like they have figured out ways to deceive us, to trick us into thinking that it is something that it isn't. They're pretending to be something they're not. They want you to answer because they want you to think they're from around here and you might know them and they might be a real person. They're trying to deceive you into thinking that they are something that they are not. And far more disastrous than a spam call is a Christian covering up the truth of the gospel of free grace. We cannot live nullifying the grace of God by our lives, brothers and sisters. We need to embrace it and live in it. We need to have died in Christ and live in Christ. You are already dead. Nothing in this life, including death, has claim on you, Christian. We sang it today. We need to recognize that in Christ, the law is answered, sin's power is over, the threat of death is done away with, and now I am to live a life that affirms everything that is true about me. Because of God's grace, I can't live a life that nullifies the gospel of grace. 
And I just want to land that in your lap. That's where Paul took his big, strong punch. That's what he was saying to the Galatian church. If you read it in context, we've kind of come to the big kapow. I know there are verses in there that we love and hold on to. But I want to, to leave you thinking, does, is my life being lived? And you can take every context imaginable. You, you can take your academic life. You can take your online life, what you put in front of your eyes. You can take your friendships. You can take your kids. You can take your family. You can take your, the church body. You need to ask the question, is there a way in my life, even right now, one who's been crucified with Christ and raised with him, am I doing anything that's nullifying the gospel of grace around me? We can take that to the Lord. I would invite you to do that. I would invite you to give earnest consideration to that and take it to him knowing that he is a gracious God who receives repenting sinners. Even sinners who've been graced before can come home to the grace of God in Christ. So I want to encourage you to live like someone who has died with Christ, who is living with him. Can I make one special final application for the younger in the room? And I'm just going to say younger than me, <laughs> which is a lot of you. One, one application, I think, might be, you, you, you're going to hear a lot from our world about going out and finding your truest self. Everybody around you is going to be telling you that they're, they're, they have found themselves or they're looking for themselves or they're, they're trying to find themselves or trying to live for themselves or trying to realize you. There's all kinds of language that gets used. Listen, Christian, your truest self died with Christ and now your truest self is hidden in Christ with God. Jesus is your truest self. You don't need to go looking somewhere else. You need to turn to Jesus and recognize that in Christ you died. In Christ you live. So now, go live in Christ. We sang the song before the throne of God above this morning. Right before I walked up. Have you ever just considered that that's not true theologically someday? Everything you sang is true right now. That before the throne of God above, you have a strong and perfect plea? That there is one who stands before God on your behalf right now with your name written on his hands and heart, with a personal, true love for you, if you could see into heaven right now, you would see that every single demand of God's good and perfect law has been checked complete next to your name because of Christ. If you could see into heaven right now, every sin that you've ever committed has been marked out, blotted out, marked, paid in full because of Christ's work for you right now. Is that the most amazing thing you've ever heard? It's unbelievable to me. And even more than that, Christ right now stands as the one who lived the perfect life and died our forgiving death on the cross and we are in him right now. As he declares that the work is finished, we're in him. So in Christ you died. In Christ you live. Now, go Live in him. Would you pray with me?
Almighty God, you are, you are wise beyond human wisdom. We need your Spirit's work among us. Words from a preacher won't be enough, but your word is sufficient to do the work. So, Father, would you come and meet with us? Lord, we so easily forget who we are. We believe the lies of the world and the lies of the enemy. We don't see how free Christ has made us. Spirit of God, would you come and help us to see every, every believer, help us to see how united with Christ we are in his death so that sin and the law have lost their hold on us and demands of us. And help us to see that we've been raised with new hearts to live new lives and help us to live lives that are utterly dependent in faith on Christ. God, would you help us to die that we might live we ask this in the perfect name of Jesus, who is enough for all of us. Amen.